presence has shifted from a major part of the pursuit of our family or our church to our only pursuit in the past three years. We live for intimacy with Jesus. We talk about that every week. So what does that mean? It means our one objective in life is to get closer and closer to Jesus at all costs. Anytime I say intimacy with Jesus or intimacy with the Lord or whatever, what I'm saying is what that means is, is that we have one objective in life, and that is to every single day get closer and closer and closer and closer to Jesus, okay, at all costs. As I've heard Ellington say, I'm going to quote Ellington, it's not Jesus and blank, it's simply just Jesus. Anybody remember him saying that a few weeks ago? That was really good. Um, I don't know if you stole that from somebody else, but... <laughs> Um, it don't matter. We'll say cheers. Right? So it's, it's not, our lives are not, it's Jesus and, you know, your career, or Jesus and, you know, whatever. It's, it's simply just Jesus. Intimacy means that you don't move by what you see. You move by what you hear. Intimacy with Jesus means you don't move by what you see. You move by what you hear. Or let me say it like this, what you've heard. You don't move by what pushes your, let's say, for example, career further while flavoring it with Jesus sporadically. You move by what leads to glory to glory only. So a lot of times what's best for your, uh, let me say it like this, for your timing, a lot of times what's best for your timing and how fast you want things to move goes directly against you moving from glory to glory in the kingdom. So there are two very contradictory realities in the New Testament. And to quote Bill Johnson, uh, revelation exists in the tension between two seemingly contradictory ideas in Scripture especially. So anytime you see things that seem to contradict each other, there's typically revelation right in the middle of it. Okay? So, so there's two very contradictory realities, especially in the New Testament, and it's these two things. It's number one, people who are more in love with and have more access to Yahweh than any person or any group of people in history. The New Testament people, let's say Paul and Peter and James and the whole New Testament church, have more love for and have more access to, on that side of Jesus, Yahweh, than any of the Israelites in your Old Testament. So they have more access than ever, right? But here's the second reality that's also present. Those same people are suffering more than any in history. So it almost, you kind of get this idea, if you'll kind of look deeper in the New Testament, you get this idea that the closer a group of people or a person or individual, get the closer they get to Jesus, the worse their life looks. So Paul was the top of the top. He was the man until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he goes from being on the top of the world and on top of the religious you know, group all the way down to eventually his head being chopped off. And, and if you read 2 Timothy, super depressing, he tells Timothy... All of Asia's left me. So he goes from being the top dog to people are fleeing from him left and right because simply of an encounter with Jesus. That's it. So, so when you read this, this, this whole New Testament, 
You see Peter and John getting persecuted. You see Paul getting persecuted. You see Stephen getting stoned to death. What's the thing that links all those people? They have more love for and more access to Yahweh through Jesus than anybody else in history. So these two things are very present in the New Testament. So what's the revelation that's right between? It's that as God is bringing his kingdom closer and closer, anything of the old order, and primarily rooted in narcissism, in a culture of narcissism, everything of an old order starts getting chaotic. As the kingdom draws closer, the shreds of the old order that remain start swirling in chaos trying to keep what they have. Let's use Rome, for example, in the New Testament. As the kingdom starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful and more powerful, the Romans see it as a threat. So what do they start doing? Pulling people apart by horses, burning people at the stake, chopping people's heads off, crucifying people upside down. Why? Because if they can make this seem illegitimate, then people will revert back to serving Rome rather than God. So, so there's always this tension. It's not a question of why, but of when, as in, his kingdom is drawing closer as the old kingdom ways fade away. So as they sense fading on the horizon, they give last-ditch efforts to remain relevant. Is this what we're experiencing today? Now, we're not being persecuted. I told somebody the other day... I, it is illegal for me to call what I experience persecution. I don't experience persecution. I experience crazy. That's not persecution. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you go to China, you can probably start calling yourself being persecuted. Not here. So we're not being persecuted. Let me be clear. Churches, I mean, let me, let me be honest with you. Like, a lot of churches are being uh, forced by the government to close due to COVID. You know, all that stuff. Still, churches are still meeting. Nobody's being persecuted. You know what I'm saying? And even those who are being persecuted, they're going to court and they're winning their cases. So, you know what I'm saying? So in America, we're not being persecuted. That day might come, but as of right now, we're not. However, however, what we're against is not the threat of heads being chopped off and pulled apart by horses and all that other stuff. What we're against, I believe, is way more deadly than that. And it's because none of that stuff is present, which should be a good thing, it's created this, this fertile soil for apathy. And so where in China, you're either all in or it's not worth it, so get all out. Here, you can say you're all in and not be one toe in. Nobody cares. Because in America, it doesn't, co- it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, let's be real. Like, being a Christian, in fact, you might gain from being a Christian in America. It doesn't really cost you anything. And so what happens is, is we've been given freedom, which should be a great blessing. We've been given freedom. But in freedom, we've let our hearts grow apathetic. And so there's a lot of people in China that if you talk, I've seen interviews with some of these church leaders, and of course their faces are darked out and all this other stuff, that they say they'd rather have what they have than what we have in America. Because there, if you're in, you're in. So they're seeing the dead raised, and they're seeing all the sick healed, and they're seeing all this other stuff, 
while we're seeing people kind of leaving the church and questioning everything because it's just ap- apathy. Apathy raise it, rises up within us and creates questions that were never there before. I mean, just like they were saying, when you're a kid, let me talk about Veda for a second. Lord, I'm so far off, but I'll get back. Veda, my daughter, our daughter, um, has no question of whether or not we're going to take care of her. No question. She lives her life with the full understanding that mom and dad are going to take care of me. They're going to feed me. They're going to make sure I have a bathroom when I need a bathroom. They're going to make sure I'm in the right places at the right time. No worries whatsoever. At what point in our lives did we get to the place where we start questioning what we never questioned before? And I'm not even talking about God at this point. I'm just talking about your relationship with your parents, let's say. At what point did you transition from complete and total trust and just enjoying life to feeling like there was another agenda, which really wasn't there, present, which made you have to question everything that your parents did, which ultimately got you to the place where you really didn't trust your parents? Like when, when did that transition take place? I believe that transition took place, and you know, this is just me. I'm not a psychologist. I believe that takes place when freedom starts to be realized. When you're a kid, you're oblivious to the freedom you actually have because you're just living dependent on parents. When you get older and you realize, oh, wait, you know what? If I don't want to do this, I just won't do it. And you realize that there is a freedom present, what do you start doing? You start questioning who you used to be dependent on because you feel like you can do it better, right? So, so what we have done is in freedom, rather than staying dependent, we in freedom have said, you know what, we can do this better. And then you got the Methodists, and you got the Episcopalian, and you got the Catholics, and you got the Pentecostals, and you got the Baptists, and the, and the other Baptists, 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 right? And now non-denomination, they've tried to make it a denomination. I won't let that happen. But you know what I mean? And you, so you got all these different divisions that all grew, not from truth. It all grew from apathy. It all grew from, wait a minute, we don't have to be like the Pentecost. They lost their ever-loving mind. Let's go over here and say the spiritual gifts are completely dead. Right? And then let's take a step further. Not only is the spiritual gifts dead, the whole church is dead. Let's do it as boring as we can. And here comes that. You know what I'm saying? Like, but this is what we do. We try to cater to what people want because it was never enough to just simply cater to what he wants. Instead, we found we got a little bit of freedom. So now I could take my church of 50 and make it a church of 50,000 if I just start catering more towards the people. So, so all this shifts... When we, I believe, when we realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a freedom. So, so because of this being present in the New Testament, had the early church, apostles and leaders, not been centrally and exclusively living for intimacy, there's that word, they would have given up and quit because it was not worth it. Had they not been living for something greater than what they saw, they would have quit a long time ago, and we would not have a New Testament because it wasn't worth it. it. Being pulled apart by horses is not worth it unless it's the legit thing. Right? 
So, so they had to have their eyes, and I mean, we know this because of Hebrews. They had to have their eyes set on what is to come, which all of them had a blueprint for, which is new creation and resurrection and his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They had that in mind. And because they had that in mind, they said, you can take my life. I'm going to get up again anyway. Take it. You're going to crucify Peter. This is Peter. You're going to crucify me. I'm not going to be crucified like Jesus. You're going to have to turn me upside down. And he gets crucified upside down. I see all this stuff is happening because they're living for one thing, and that is intimacy with Jesus. That's the one thing that no matter what the earth does to you, no matter what family does to you, no matter what your job does to you, that's the one thing that can never be taken from you. It's you and Jesus and the relationship that you cultivate with him. If that's the one thing that you can hold on to and cannot be touched, not even by the devil, if that's the one thing, should that not be the one thing we live cultivating in our lives? Why would we live cultivating all this stuff that can be taken from us and ultimately when we die will be taken from us rather than living for the one thing that is eternal which can never be touched, which is our relationship with Jesus? Okay. I'm feeling it now. All right. We, we would not be here today had they, the early church apostles, leaders, had they tried to build a good, tolerant organization that got along with the Roman kingdom. We would not be here today if that were the case. If Peter and James and John and Paul eventually sat around, and all the early leaders sat around in a room and said, you know what, um, you know, Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. We, shouldn't, we really need to start tolerating all these people. Everybody's good. Do, do you? You know what I'm saying? If that were the case, Dream Church would not exist, and nobody in America, I believe, would know who Jesus is. I don't think what, what made the early church stand out was that the Roman government looked like this, and the kingdom of God looked like this, and no matter what the Roman government did, this kingdom kept increasing. They killed them all, it kept increasing. They threatened to kill them all. It kept increasing. Does it not? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, Isaiah says. They honored leaders. Make no mistake about that. They honored leaders. Look at Romans 13. So they honored leaders. But they, in intimacy, inherited whispers of a newly restored creation that could only be inaugurated by covenant. The most certain way to make a mark in the world is to bear his image through being his bride. The number one way to make a mark, if you want, man, I want to make a mark in the earth. Number one way to do that is to bear his image by being his bride. I would say that might be the only way. If you work hard enough, if you work hard enough, your name might be revered or mentioned in a history book. If you live in the intimacy between a bride and groom, us and Yeshua, your name will be honored by a living, breathing legacy. Let me, let me just say this one more time. If you work hard enough, the height of your achievement will be this. Your name might be mentioned in a history book one day. 
But if you live your life in intimacy with Jesus, like that of a bride and groom, your name will be honored, not by remembering your name, but by a living and breathing legacy that has been produced by covenant. We're about to read this in Ruth. The only true way to multiply, I don't know how to say that nice, or a, a censored, so I'm trying to. The only true way to multiply is intimacy. The only way to produce offspring is intimacy. That's it. No other way. So no matter how good your career or life goals turn out, the only possible way to multiply is intimacy. That's not to say that those things aren't important at all. But it is to say that they are only important if seen within the lifestyle of covenant. So intimacy will cost you things your hands have attained. Y'all still with me? Okay. This is all going to make sense when I read this in Ruth. Intimacy will cost you things that your hands have attained. It has to. But that is the true test of who is willing to be born again or who simply hide narcissism with a prayer. That's the test. He loves you too much to not make you choose. And I thought about this this morning. I'm going to wrap this up and then we'll go into Ruth 4. If somebody said to you, the Lord is ready to pour out on your life every heavenly blessing that he has prepared for you right now. Do you want it? Everybody in the room would be like, let's go. Now, what if, what if that person said, the Lord is ready to pour out every heavenly blessing he's prepared for you right now, but the only thing you have to do is give away everything in earthly possessions. Nobody was like, let's go. You know what I'm saying? Right? So, so Jesus doesn't, doesn't, let me say, like, Jesus doesn't require you to, Jesus doesn't require you to give up what you love in the world. He only requires you to give up what you love more than him. Okay? So I love my wife. Because I have a relationship with Jesus, I don't say to my wife, well, we can't be together anymore because I got Jesus and I found you in the earth. No, right? Right? But if I start holding her in a place that is above where I hold Jesus, even she becomes an idol. That doesn't mean the Lord wants me to get rid of her. It means the Lord wants me to put her and everything else in its place. Ultimately put him in his place. So he, he doesn't require you. It's like sell everything and get, you know, sell everything Buy out, follow Jesus, all that stuff. That is only required if everything is keeping you from following Jesus. The, all this stuff in the earth, see, the, there's this idea that everything in the earth is bad and everything in heaven's good. No. Jesus came and took authority of the earth, too. So the devil has no keys. So everything in the heavenly realm is holy, and everything in the earthly realm, if it were held in the right way, is also holy. The en- we give the enemy way too much credit. Let me say it like this. I saw a, um, a news article, and um, Lord knows, I don't know where this news article came from. I forget what company. It's probably good that I don't remember. But anyway, and, uh, and they posted this, this man, I, sh- I wish we had it. But they posted this picture, 
And uh, it was talking about just how different churches have reacted to the pandemic and all that other stuff. In the picture, it was half a picture. It was about the size of your iPhone screen, you know, that kind of like frame. And uh, half the picture was Jesus. White as could be. That's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> solid white. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Jesus was there. Long, flowy hair, you know, the whole nine yards. And a cloud, sun, I mean, all that stuff. And he's got his arm on a table. Let's see. Like this. Like that. And then over here on this side, same height, bigger muscles, with the whole fire and all that stuff and the horns is the devil right here. And in the picture, no one's winning the arm wrestling match. Okay? So much wrong with this. But this is, but this is how we view, that's how we view Jesus and God and the whole Trinity and the devil. That's how we view it is they're both equal at any point. One might win, one might lose. We hope Jesus wins because we've chosen his side. That's what we believe. Right? It's this arm wrestling match that we don't know who's going to win. What the picture should have been is, like I said last week, is Jesus standing up, probably with a good tan on him, standing up. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's from Israel, not, not South Carolina. The big tan, uh, you know, Jesus standing there. And then, you know how um, there's these, gra- like, the, I'm thinking of the office, but anyway, where there's a graph that's the sliver on a graph is so tiny that you actually have to make a whole nother like mark to show where the sliver is on the graph because it's so small you can't see it with the naked eye. It should be Jesus way up here and not even visible, not even, I mean, with a little dot and a circle right there, Satan blown up a hundred times larger than he is. That's what it should be with Jesus going right here. Boop. And then the second picture would have been me going, boop, right back. You know what I'm saying? But see, but that, that, that's what we do. Man, I'm, I'm just, and what the Lord is, he's trying to get us to see that not only is everything in the heavenly realm redeemable and redeemed, but everything in the earth is redeemable and redeemed. That's what on earth as it is in heaven means. So when you go to a coffee shop, that coffee shop was designed to be a heavenly hosted place, completely redeemed. When you go to a football game, we won't mention teams because it's still too early. When you go to a football game, right? All this stuff is under his authority, not his and the only authority that he holds is authority that we said, let me take some of this and hand it right over to the devil. That's it. That's all the authority he has. When Jesus said, I've taken the keys of death in the grave, what does that mean? He has the keys to death and the grave. If he's holding all the keys, how many keys does the devil still have? None. Right? So we spend so much time feeling like we've been beat up by the devil when you just need to give him a good kick. Don't waste your time. Just, just give him a good little, like, crush your foot on him. Right? I'm tired of him. I'm tired of him. He's annoying. I ain't going to give him any more credit for anything. All right. Ruth 4. But you're about to see. that This story is, is unbelievable how this ties in with everything the Lord's been doing in us. So uh, I'm going to give you a summary, like, how we get to Ruth 4, just real quick, and then we'll, we'll go right into it. So, in Ruth, 
uh, this is what happens. Naomi leaves Israel with her husband and two sons due to famine and goes to the country of Moab. While in Moab, her sons marry Moabites, okay? You don't really need to remember any of this stuff. I'm just kind of giving you some context. Over the course of 10 years, her husband and her two sons die in Moab, and she's left with the two daughter-in-laws. So Naomi has, has really had it rough. Naomi decides to go back to Israel, but tells the two daughters, daughter-in-laws, to go home. One goes home, the other, Ruth, the book is named after, Ruth clings to Naomi and stays and returns to Israel with her. She refuses to leave. While there, Ruth meets Boaz in his field, who happens to be the families, one of the families, kinsmen redeemers. And we're going to talk about this in a second. Actually, let me kind of give you an explanation of what that means now. So a kinsman redeemer, as described throughout the Torah especially, is a near male relative. It's a near male, near male relative who delivers or rescues, who redeems property, who receives restitution for wrong done to a relative who has died. So the idea of a kinsman redeemer places an emphasis on redemption, salvation, and vindication. You would also have the responsibility to marry the widow of the dead inheritor, so the son in this case. You would have the responsibility to marry his widow so that you could produce a male child so that the inheritance of the dead father stays in the son's family line. Okay, Like I said, I know that's a lot. You don't necessarily have to remember any of that stuff, but I just wanted to kind of give you some context. So towards the end of chapter 3, Boaz tells Ruth that he will be the kinsman redeemer, but that he's not first in line to do so. So he's willing to be the kinsman redeemer for the family, but he's not the first in line to do so. There's another that is the next of kin in line to be the kinsman redeemer. So this is where we pick up the story. So let me uh, read Ruth 4. Very short chapter. Um, if I can get my chair back. I move this chair so much. I know it drives some of y'all crazy. Uh, Ruth 4. Ruth 4 says this. I'm in the NLT today. Sorry for jumping around between translations. <clears throat> Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Town gate is, was kind of like a court back then. That's where court dealings would have taken place. Um, Boaz went to the town gate, took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. So you kind of get this court idea. Verse 3, And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was Naomi's husband that died. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. Now here's where it gets interesting. The man replied, 
All right, I'll redeem it. So at this point, the man has accepted, I'm going to be the redeemer for the family. Check this out. Verse 5. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Verse 6, listen to this. Then I can't redeem it. The family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I can't do it. Now in those days, it was custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders, And to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. Excuse me, those Israel names get tricky sometimes. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite of Mahlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband, And to inherit the family property here in his hometown, you are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing at the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. Really interesting right here. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Verse 13, and this is towards the end. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Check this out. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. So the Lord starts redeeming things that she has lost. Okay? And they named him Obed. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. 
Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of David or Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, period. Now, everybody knows who David is, right? Really, so much in this story. So much in this story. So the first kinsman, let me point out a few things. The first kinsman redeemer, I don't know if you caught this, is nameless. We don't know who he is. In this culture, in this culture, they believed a person's, and I've taught this before, they believe a person's power or being was in their name. So if you read through the Old Testament, you'll hear the Lord saying things like, um, uh, this place of worship is set up so that you remember the name of the Lord God forever. Or about the idols in the land, I'm going to erase their name from the land. The, all this language. And then later you get Jesus saying things like, if you ask anything in my name, you'll receive it. What is he saying? Ask anything in my being, anything in my power. That's what he's talking about. So the name, the name was where you found a person's being, okay? So the writer of Ruth left the name of the first man out as a literary technique to say, without blatantly saying it, that this man was worthless. The writer of Ruth left the man's name out as a way of saying he was not even worth mentioning. So the first relative, unknown, initially, let's say, has no identity. The first relative initially agrees to be the kinsman redeemer. Why? Because he would get Elimelech's land. So Boaz goes to him and says, if you want it, the land's yours. And the man says, yeah, I'll take it. I'll be the kinsman redeemer. But then Boaz mentions that to get the land, he would have to marry Ruth and in intimacy produce an offspring. He wanted the inheritance until it involved intimacy. He wanted the inheritance of the land until it involved covenant. This is what he says, verse 6. When Boaz mentions this, he says, Then I cannot redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. I'll take the land if it's going to profit me, but if it requires covenant, it might cost me what I've already made for myself. So keep it. Intimacy might endanger what I've built. So if it involves that, count me out, is what he's saying. Does that sound familiar? How many people want the land without committing to covenant? In this case, and in today's case, the only way, to be clear, the only way to get the land was through covenant. It, it wasn't you inherit this land and if you want to marry Ruth, she's available. It's the only way to get this land is to marry Ruth and produce from her. 
That's the only way. The land was an overflow of covenant. It wasn't the, the full inheritance. The land was a part of the inheritance, really of the inheritance of covenant. Y'all with me? The inheritance was a consequence of it. So Naomi's family didn't need someone willing to take the land because they had that. They needed someone committed to intimacy. Someone needing or wanting the land was not going to redeem the family. The only way the family was going to be redeemed is for a Boaz to step in and say, I want Ruth, and the land is an added bonus. They didn't need someone to step up and say, I want Columbia. They needed someone to step up and say, I want Jesus, and when I get Jesus, I'll also get Columbia. That's what they needed. The family would not have been redeemed by this nameless, identity-free person saying, yeah, I'll take the land. They wanted someone to step in and marry Ruth, who would produce Obed, who would produce Jesse, who would produce David, who would produce Jesus Christ. Without Boaz stepping in to get Ruth in covenant, Jesus' line would be affected forever. Man, I, I feel this so much. Elimelech, let me read this. This is from one of the commentaries I read when I'm studying. I thought this was really great. Listen, listen to what this says. Elimelech had the right to an heir. That's the owner of the land that passed away, the dad. So Ruth was still living, and the man who bought the field had the duty of raising an heir for the dead man through her. If a son were born, if a son were born, which in this case it was, if the son were born, the land would revert to him, and Elimelech's property would remain in his family. The kinsman would then lose what he had bought and would have another family to keep. Hence the reply, I can't do it. The cost was too high. The cost of intimacy was too high for him to say yes. I mean, think, think about this. Think about this. What would have happened is he would have inherited the land. The first one would have inherited the land. So he would have owned the land until he married Ruth and produced a child with Ruth. If they produced a boy, when that boy was born and came of age, the land would go to the boy and the kinsman redeemer would lose the land. So it would cost him the land, and he would now have another family to take care of. So this came at a big cost. To be the kinsman redeemer was not cheap. It cost you a lot of financial hardship. Now, Boaz, I don't know if you would call it hardship because he was rich, but it would have cost you money. It, you, you didn't gain in this unless you see gaining as Obed. How you view the outcome of this determines whether you see success in possessions or whether you see success in a legacy that's closer to him than you were. If you read this story and your mindset is, I've got to gain, 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 you get to the end of the story and say, man, that's a bummer. If your mindset is, 
I believe my legacy can have the impact of a David or ultimately Jesus Christ, you get to the end of the story and say, praise God. He might have lost something in the temporary, but what he gained was an eternal reward that could not be taken from him. Let me read this. In Philippians 3, if you want to turn there, I'm almost toward the end of my notes, so i got a lot of time to spontaneous around. Philippians 2, Philippians 2. This is what Paul says, okay? Verses, uh, I'm going to just read 7 and 8, verse 7 and 8. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says this, if I can find it. I should have marked all these. Um, he says this, okay? Instead, um, wait, let me make sure I have that right. 3, 7 and 8. That's what I was like, wait, that's not right. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Uh, Paul says this, <clears throat> excuse me. Yet all of the accomplishments that I once took credit for, I've now forsaken them, and I regard it all as nothing. If you read the Greek word, that Greek word, honestly, in the English should be translated probably the S word. If I'm being like, that's, that's the closest English word we have to what Paul is actually saying right there. So he's not just saying, uh, all the accomplishments I had, I took credit for, I've now forsaken them and regard them as nothing. He's saying, all of them I had, I regard them as completely nasty and worthless. That's what he's saying, okay? So I, count, I regard it all as nothing compared to the delight of experience in Jesus Christ as my Lord. Verse 8. To truly know him meant letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all his greatness. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I once had a lot of stuff and a lot of accomplishments, but compared to knowing him, I count all of it as garbage. Take it all away. Compared to an encounter where he shows up in glory and says, leave all of it behind. I've got something greater to show you. This is Paul writing Philippians in the midst of being severely persecuted. So he's saying, I'll take this reality of being persecuted and beaten and thrown in jail and people leaving me over all the accomplishments I had then. That's what intimacy with Jesus will do for you. It'll cause you to have eyes for him, not eyes for what's happening right in front of you. So people can curse your name. They can send you emails. They can send me emails all they want. But if I have eyes for Jesus, I see straight past that and see the joy of knowing him above all the other achievements I had before. So, so what did Boaz gain in this story? What did he gain? He gained, it, he gained legacy. How significant is this? Let me read this. Don't turn there because I want to surprise you with it. Matthew 1, check this out. How significant is this? In Matthew 1, fast forward thousands of years. Okay, Matthew 1. Verse 1, this is the scroll of the lineage and birth of Jesus. This is the scroll of the lineage of Jesus. The son of who? David. And descendant of Abraham. Now listen to this, see if you hear any names. 
Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had a son named Judah. He and his brothers became the tribes of Israel. Verse 3, Judah and Tamar had twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Perez had a son named Hezron. Hezron had Ram. Ram had Amenadab, who had a son named Nashant, who had a son named Salmon, who along with Rahab had a son named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David, who became king. In the book of Matthew, when Matthew is listing the lineage of Jesus Christ, you find Boaz. You know who you should have found there? The first kinsman redeemer. We should be, let's say his name's Jim Bob, okay? I mean, the Bible says he's worthless. No, but, right? So you should have read, you should have read, you should have read. This, the whole lineage would have changed, by the way, because now you're talking about a totally different person, Right? And so you should have read all the names, and you see Jim Bob, and then you said who had a son named David, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. A, but instead, because of one man's unwillingness to live for intimacy and covenant, because of one man's unwillingness to do that, instead of finding his name that we don't even know, you find Boaz. So Boaz in his lifetime, might have lost that piece of property that Obed would have picked up. But I believe what Boaz saw from a distance was in this baby was the seed that was so significant that it gave birth to the son of Yahweh. This is how, so when Jesus is born, in his DNA, do you know what he's carrying in his DNA? Boaz and Ruth. This is how significant this is. I wonder if the first coming of Jesus was initiated by one man and a lot of other things, but one man making a decision for covenant over possessions. I wonder if that decision ultimately initiated the coming of Jesus for the first time, if another man or woman's decision to live for covenant and intimacy over possessions could bring him back again. That's what the gospel is. It's not we're waiting around until things get bad. It's we're waiting around until one man or one woman says, I choose covenant if it costs me everything. That, that's what, you know what all of creation, I say this every week, I feel like, all of creation is standing on tiptoe yearning, not for the Democrats to win the presidential election. Not for the Republicans to win the, you know what they're yearning for? Not for the earth to get bad, not for laws to be passed. They're standing on tiptoe, yearning for the manifestation of a Boaz or a Ruth that says, this is going to cost me a lot, but I see on the horizon something in my seed that's worth it costing me a lot. I, I could have done a lot more where I was before this church. I had access to thousands on a weekly basis. If my idea was fame and possessions, but I saw something in my daughter 
that was so significant that I had to make the decision and we had to make the decision. We're going to choose covenant over fame and possessions so that when she is raised up as a ruler, which is what her name means, when she is raised up, she's going to carry so much power in her DNA that is rooted in a mom and dad who chose covenant over possessions that she's going to begin to give birth to an Obed who's going to give birth to a Jesse who's going to give birth to something so significant that Jesus Christ is called the son of David more than he's called the son of God. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is called more the son of David than he's called the son of God. How significant is this? David doesn't exist unless Boaz, like he was, unless Boaz makes the decision, I'm going to choose covenant. That's how significant this stuff is. So people all the time, man, when are we going to move beyond the message of intimacy? When we start living in intimacy, that's when we'll move on. We'll talk about joy and happiness and peace and living in harmony and all that other fun stuff when all of us learn what it means to live at his feet and that be enough for us. But until then, we'll talk about intimacy every single week. Well, brother, people aren't going to stay at your church. That's all right. It's cool with me because what we'll keep doing is going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know what? Boaz was long dead, long dead when an angel overshadows a virgin and says, you're going to give birth to a baby boy. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor. You start hearing this Isaiah language come out of this angel, overshadowing this virgin. Boaz is long dead, and yet his legacy is about to birth the coming of the kingdom of God through the very Son of God. I wonder what each of you in this room is carrying in your legacy that you might not. This is why we say this all the time. You might not ever see, but because you choose covenant over what you could possess in the earth, it's going to produce the changing of the globe in such a way that you might not see it, but it will happen. I would rather the earth be completely transformed into the image that it was designed to be transformed into, but me and my daughter and my granddaughter and my great-granddaughter and my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter or grandson not see it. I would rather that happen and the earth be molded into the image it was designed to be molded into than for us to just see each generation get by. We've done that. We've done that. Every gen- just Let's just get by. Let's just get through it. Let's just get through 2020. Let's just get through what's going on in the world. Let's just get through this present. And I'm sick of just getting through. I'm sick of Christians just saying, we're just going to get through it, brother. No, 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 no. We're going to get it in everything that we're doing. So I don't care what happens on November 3rd because I know what's coming in the earth. And it's not a president. I know what's coming in the earth, and it's Christ Jesus and his kingdom. How do you know that? Not because I'm super prophetic. I know that because I've chosen intimacy. And intimacy pulls him into the story 100% of the time. You don't have to be prophetic. You don't have to discern anything. You don't have to know what's next on the prophetic calendar. You don't have to follow a bunch of prophets on Facebook. To know that when you step into intimacy, it pulls the kingdom into the earth where you are. Nothing can happen when you start to get in intimacy but reproduction. Is that not the point of intimacy? 
Are, y- are y'all with me? I feel, I feel this all over me. Whew. One choice, one choice to intimacy produced worldly loss initially. Later produced the kinsman redeemer of the cosmos, Jesus. You know what Jesus is called? One of his names? The kinsman redeemer. One of the names of Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. This is why this message is so crucial. The original redeemer who said no because of what it would cost died with his riches. But at what cost? The the original redeemer, and I'm assuming that. He might have lost everything. We don't know. But the original redeemer who said no probably died with all of his riches. But at what cost? His name, his name should have been listed in Matthew 1. But instead, not only is it not listed in Matthew 1, we don't even know who this person is. You only have an identity through covenant. This man has no identity. But you better believe Boaz does. This man has no identity whatsoever. You only have an identity through covenant. The Lord uh, started sharing something with me. And uh, actually, that's, I'm almost done. Matt, you can go ahead and hop up here. Where are you? Oh, hey. 11.43. Good Lord, what is happening? Um, <laughs> the Lord started sharing something with me a few weeks ago. And if this hits, awesome. If not, throw it away. It's okay. Um. There's only one identity in creation, and that's God's. Okay? There's only one identity. You can't look like, and, and, and I'm going to say this with all caution, with all caution. I don't think you can look like the devil. I don't think that's possible. I don't, I don't know if the devil has an identity. And, and here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. When God makes man... He makes this, and and Damon Thompson has the most beautiful teaching on this, so I'm not even going to try to steal it. But when you were created, you were created out of this Greek phrase, which theologians all throughout the years have described the Trinity as, which is perichoresis. When When the first church father, early church father, went to describe the Trinity for the first time in a theological statement, He described it as perichoresis. Peri is where we get the word periscope from. And choresis, here we go, moving my chair again. I need one of those sliders and just press a button and it slides up and down. Okay, so peri is where you get the word periscope from. Choresis is where you get the word choreography from. So the idea is, is that for eternity past, present, and future... The Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, exist in this spinning dance. Where they're each distinct, but they're so interlocked that they're one. Okay. Now, understand that. In Genesis 1, what does God say? Genesis 1 and 2. When he makes man, he says, let us, not me, let us 
make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. You and I were literally spun out of that dance. That Father, Son, and Spirit are existing in this perichoresis, this spinning dance, and all of a sudden, they go one time around and two times around, and an image is spun off, and there's Adam. And then Adam is brought in and becomes the fourth partner of the spinning dance. And then out of Adam, Eve, and then Eve becomes a partner. What do you think, what do you think that looked like when they walked together in the cool of the day? Were they walking or could they have been dancing? I can't give you any certainty. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. So use your imagination. But that happens. When the fall happens, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are displaced from perichoresis. They don't lose relationship. It looks way different. Right? Then Jesus comes to the cross. He dies. He calls out kalah in the Hebrew. It is finished and bride. And in John 17, before he dies, one of the last things he says is he prays, and this is what he prays, among other things, he prays that they, talking about us, would be united as one with them. He's literally saying, I pray that you would bring them back into the spin. And Jesus seals it by saying, it is finished, bride. And so you have Peter and Paul and James and all the other early church leaders, Stephen, Philip, all these early church leaders that are facing crazy amounts of persecution. They're, let me say, like, they're losing worldly possessions. Hello, Boaz. But they've made the decision, I choose covenant, even if it costs me everything. And what happens? They're invited into that spin, and they begin to produce an image, and then they begin to produce an image. And then 2,000 years later, we're in this room on another continent producing the same image that they were producing. And it's not because they created a great organization. We don't even know what their organization looks like. In fact, if you read throughout church history, the early church's organization stunk. They went broke. They went broke. Paul had to go all throughout the churches to raise money for them because they didn't have anything organized very well. I mean, so so they, it wasn't about the organization. And the Lord still provided but they weren't focused on let's create an awesome, thriving organization, which I believe you can absolutely use and you really need. We don't just run around here just flippantly doing things. We have a great organization that we're setting up. That's, that's, that's not at all what it is. But it's that that's not what we find our identity in. And if, it, if intimacy comes at the cost of the organization, take it. I, don't believe, I believe they can work hand in hand. But that's not what we're doing this about. 
we're not doing this so we can reach the globe. And yet, we reach the globe through a podcast, through a live stream. We get mess- I got a message from somebody from Brazil that watches the live stream. So, so we're not focused on how can we reach the world, and yet our intimacy is starting to produce an image all over the world. How, how is that possible? Because when you choose covenant at whatever it might cost you, it starts to reproduce with some powerful covenant DNA. What have you said no to relating to intimacy with Jesus because the cost was too high? What have you said no to because it cost you too much? How many moments have you said yes to something that would further your own inheritance? Career, finances, goals, ministry, etc. What have you said yes to that would have furthered or has furthered your own inheritance, but that has simultaneously cost you your legacy? When I say legacy, I mean that which comes from covenant. I mean the people that you transform in your life, not because you give them a good word, but because you have overflowed from a living, thriving covenant with Jesus that it can do nothing but transform other people around you. That's what I'm talking about. You might say, Josh, I don't have kids. Maybe you're older and say, I never had kids. Or maybe you don't want kids. I don't know. Whatever your situation may be, I'm not talking about um, blood legacy. I mean, I, I think that's a major, major part of it. I'm talking about the people around you. Who are you producing? I'm talking about reproducing an image. So that might come through your line. That might come through your coworkers. I'm not talking about you marrying somebody and reproducing. I think that can be awesome. I'm talking about what image do you carry that is contagious? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if I can pass a virus by sneezing, I better be able to pass an image on by looking. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, a lot of us got more faith that we can spread a virus than the image of God. And I'm not saying anything about the virus. Put that asleep. I'm kind of sick of talking about it. Like the devil. I'm sick of hearing about it. Right? But, but. What have you said yes to that's furthered your own inheritance but has simultaneously cost you that legacy? It's cost you the image. All right, let me, let me say this in love. Are you going to be, you choose, nobody chooses this for you. Are you going to be a nobody with some riches? Are you going to be a nobody with some riches or the producer of something so significant it has the power to shift creation into a new age. One more time. You choose today. Choose you this day, Joshua says. So Joshua says again. Choose you this day who you will serve, he tells the Israelites. Choose this day who you're going to live your life for. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But you've got to choose on your own. So I said, choose you this day who you will serve. You can be a nobody with riches or the producer of a legacy so significant it makes all of the creation that's standing on tiptoe say that's the one. You choose. It's not even about anointing. 
every person on planet earth is anointed to bear the image of Jesus. It's, it's not about your anointing. Your anointing's great if it overflows from covenant. But your anointing does not have an impact on how many people you transform into the image of God through your life lived. It has nothing to do with it. You know what it has exclusively to do with? How much you yourself bear the image. It's not about what I say. I can preach a lot of great messages. But unless I look like the one I'm preaching about, they are nothing. So Paul says, I could know everything there is to know, know all the wisdom. I could have faith to move a mountain, tell it to jump into a sea. I could know the mysteries of all the kingdom and all the world and all of God. And yet, if I don't love, what is he saying? First John says, God is love. So he's, really what he's saying is, I can know all that stuff, but if I don't bear the image of the one who is love, I am nothing. I'm nothing but a banging gong, just screaming out a bunch of good messages, listening to a bunch of good podcasts, and I'm just banging and banging and banging, and it's really annoying to a world who's looking at me for an image, and they're hearing the words of the image, but when they look at us, all they see is what looks like them. The world's not longing for somebody who sounds like they are what they are. They're looking for someone who is who they are and who they say they are. They're not looking for someone who can talk the talk. They're looking for someone who can look the look, who lives the life, who walks the walk, and not just knows God by reading through the Bible and listening to a bunch of messages. They know God through intimacy through the secret place, through covenant, and through saying yes to one thing I desire and this shall I seek. Do you know who says that? David. Boaz chooses covenant and his great grandson is the beloved. Do you know what God says about David? He says, Saul is your king, but David is my king. He, he says, I've come to choose a king for myself. David, he calls David his king, his beloved. While David is out in a field, Ellington mentioned that this morning, while he's out in a field playing a harp and singing, what a beautiful name it is, you know, whatever. Probably a dream song. I'm just kidding. While, while, while he's out in the field, Playing, singing, playing, singing. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But I'm just doing this for the pleasure of, of, of God's company. What he has no idea is going on is Samuel's meeting with Jesse, who is Boaz's grandson. And he's meeting with Jesse saying, you know, you got a lot of great kids, but none of these are the ones. Is there not another? And while David's out in the field playing his harp, shepherding sheep, somebody comes up and says, David, there's a prophet here to see you. David, my king, my king. Would y'all um, just pray with me for a second? Real, real practical. What, what does all this mean? It, it means we've got to stop compartmentalizing God. 
It means your devotion time with God is not one hour in the morning and then the other 23 hours are your time at work and at home and with family. It's that 24 hours are his and you have no other time. When you're playing, when I'm playing with my daughter in the floor with Barbies or whatever else we're playing with, that is just as much worship as when I'm in the secret place at 5 a.m. reading through the Bible. We stop compartmentalizing God. We stop saying, you're this part, you're my Sunday part, and then I've got this part over here, and then i got work over here, and i got family over here. It's that you're my everything. One thing I desire, I'm going to view everything in my life through you. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust all these things shall be added unto me. If something has to fall, it's not going to be him. If something in my life has to be said no to, it is sure not going to be the Lord. But Abba, I, I pray right now that you would just continue to reroute us in what it means to choose covenant above all else. That's what we've been talking about for months, really for three years. But what does it mean? What does it mean for a group of people to be the Boaz that says, whatever the cost, I choose legacy over everything. Whatever the cost, I choose covenant over everything. And I believe what covenant can produce is what Jesus told Peter when he said, whatever you lose in this time, you'll get a hundredfold in this lifetime and the next. I don't know if he was talking about possessions. I think he probably included that. But I think what he was saying is, what your life produces because of what you have chosen will be so significant that it will blow away anything you had before. So if you need to make that decision today to recommit, or maybe you've never committed, to commit to the one thing, to Him and Him alone being the only thing you pursue, if that's what you need to do today, you just need to make that decision right now in this moment. Just say yes. Just reorder your life. Here's the beauty of this. You are in control of your life. Ultimately, I've given my control to Yahweh, and we need to do that. But you're in control of who you say yes and no to and what you say yes and no to. It's not about rearranging things. It's about just what you say yes and no to. So, Lord, I thank you for doing that in this group of people. Lord, I thank you for Boaz. This isn't just some fictional story we're reading in a book. This is history. This is the history of who we are. Hebrews says, those who have faith and believe are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. Guess who's Abraham's seed? Boaz. This is our ancestors we're talking about too. I thank you for Boaz. Lord, I love you. I love you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for pulling me out. When I thought I lost me, you knew where I left me. You picked up all the pieces and put me back together. You're the defender of my heart. In your name, amen. Amen.